man, it is, it's good to be here. We said it last Sunday, like we were, we were kind of out of pocket for three out of five Sundays, and so it's nice to kind of be on a, a regular trajectory of meeting on, and gathering on Sundays, and, and I've said it a lot since the, all the fun we had with COVID, like I think it made me far more appreciative of being able to sit in the same room at the same time with the same people pursuing the same God every single week, and so glad you're here. Um, man. It's going to be, I mean, I'm already there today. Like, we got problems. Like that last song, I love the way y'all did that last song, completely different. And I'm just sitting back there, I'm like, I can't even sing. I can't even sing. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, it is going to be one of those days. Love this passage. And I think I say that every week, but I do. Like, I really, really love this passage. Like, I love the book of Mark, probably of all the Gospels. Like, we've been in here for a while. We're going to be in here for a while longer. Um, And I've said it, like, the book of Mark is like the Michael Bay of the Gospels. Like, a lot of the action rests here. Today we're going to look at a passage that is not found in the other synoptics, and it's not found in John. Uh, It's the only place here. It's kind of an anomaly as far as the Gospels go, and there's a couple words in here that are anomalies, too. They don't appear anywhere else in Scripture save one place, and we're going to cover that. But today, uh, just to kind of get us caught up, Uh, Jesus is still uh, in Gentile territory. He's left uh, where he was among Jews, and so now he's out speaking, teaching, healing, doing all that kind of stuff uh, with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles. And so today we see uh, something that's most likely a result of something that we read about earlier. Like last week we talked about, uh, last week was one of those sticky passages, you know, uh, and we did our best to cover through that. One of the first sticky passages that we went through is when Jesus went into Gentile country for the first time, the Decapolis, and he exercised like a legion of demons, sent them into pigs. They ran off a cliff. Pretty crazy passage. And if you have questions about that, go back. You can find it on the website and take a peek. But probably what we're seeing and hearing and reading today is a result of what occurred there. Because something happened at the end of that passage, which was pretty interesting. Uh, The guy that he exercised the demons from, he asked Jesus, he said, I want to follow you. I want to come with you. And Jesus said something really strange to people that wanted to follow him. He said no. Because the majority of the time, anytime someone wanted to follow Jesus, you know, there was the invitation like, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. We talk about that a lot. But in this case, in the Decapolis before, after the exercising of many of these demons, the guy said, I want to follow you. He said no. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go home I want you to tell everyone that you see what has happened to you. We find him back in the Decapolis today, and probably the fame that meets him there and probably the response of the people that we see is a result of that go and tell. Go and tell your family. Go and tell your friends the freedom that you've experienced, what you have been released from. And so today we're going to pick up chapter 7, verse 31. Uh, Last week uh, we did look at the healing of the Syrophoenician woman and there were some, some statements made there that were just odd, but again, we, we kind of made the idea clear that probably what he was saying was as a result of culture, but probably for the disciples' benefit to let them know this salvation that Jesus is bringing, this healing, this restoration, um, man, it's for all people that will believe, not just Jews. It's not just ours, not just theirs, but it's for all people who will believe. And so uh, we're going to start in verse 31. I'm going to pray uh, that God will calm my heart and... Uh, and kind of unify my thoughts, and then we're going to jump right in. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, so much for your word uh, that existed before we did. Um, God, that's been handed down um, in so many miraculous and amazing ways so that we may know you, so that we may uh, make you known, um, and God, so that we can be known by you. God, thank you so much for that. Thank you, God, that we get to celebrate Jesus today, the works that he's done, the things that he revealed, uh, the very person that he was, and that was you with skin on. God, thank you for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
So starting in verse 31, we're going to read through the end of this chapter, and then we'll go back through and talk about a few of these things. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment or was mute. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside in the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell anyone or to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, they said. And so in this passage, right on the tail end of Jesus healing a woman that was outside of the Jewish order, the Jewish family, the Jewish heritage, we find him again in this region that is made up of mostly uh, non-Jewish people or Gentiles. Uh, Mark begins this passage talking about all of the places that Jesus had gone. Uh, Some people read this and they think Mark was confused about his geography because if we look at this journey, it was quite circuitous. It was not just a, a simple straight line. And this was kind of summarizing the places that Jesus had been in this time. It wasn't in one day. He went to all of these places, but it's just kind of tracking the places that he was going in this territory. Then we find him back in the Decapolis, which at one time just meant 10 cities. number of cities, they varied uh, through time, but basically it was just kind of a collective of the people that were in this region and their major cities, the major trade routes and all of these things. And it says, when this happened, um, there were some people. There were some people, and they brought a guy to Jesus, and they just said, can you please touch him? Because right now he, he can't hear, and, and one word that's used here says mute, but probably a better translation based on the re- revealing through the rest of this passage is that he had a speech impediment. Now what we know, given uh, what we know now in society, is if someone cannot hear, they cannot speak clearly either because they can't hear what they're trying to emulate. And so either way, the man couldn't hear, and he could not speak well or speak clearly. And so he had some people that brought him to Jesus, and they said, we just... We want you to lay your hands on them. Not only did they say we want you to lay your hands on them, but the word in Scripture is they begged. They implored earnestly. They were like, please, please lay your hands on him so that he may speak. And so in this given passage, I think a couple of things that we already need to see is that um, he wasn't in Jewish territory. If he was, this would have been fairly expected because he had been around Jerusalem, he had been around Galilee, he had been around all of these places in Capernaum, and people had a lot of opportunities to hear about the things that he had done. But Jesus hadn't been here very much. He had been here once before, several chapters previous, and he was here last week. But, you know, as far as the way that his fame had spread, most of the time it was person to person, person to person, person to person. And these people hadn't had a lot of those experiences except maybe the time that he came to the Decapolis before, when he found the man that was out of his mind, inhabited by many, many demons, and had had terrorized people for a long time living in the cemetery. And after Jesus exercised those demons, sent them out, brought this man restoration, he sat calmly at his feet, he told that man, he said, now, I want you to go home, I want you to tell your family, tell your friends of what you've seen. And probably for months Months on end, this story about this Jesus, this son of a carpenter, this man from Galilee had been circulating and going through the towns, going through the crowds, going through the Decapolis, so to speak, of this guy who had taken this man who was inhabited by many demons, who would cut himself, who would scare people to death, who was just a nightmare literally to be around. They had heard that this Jesus had released him. He had set him free, had set him free from the chains that were literally holding him, not the physical ones because he kept breaking those, but the other ones, the spiritual ones that had held him. 
And it says in the very beginning of this, when Jesus got here, it said that there were some people, they, we don't know their names, we don't know how many they there were, but they just brought this man to Jesus and they said, hey, could you, could you just touch him? Just touch him. And so they begged him to lay his hands on him. In verse 33, and it says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he did a couple things. He Number one, he pulled him to the side. Number two, he took his fingers and he put them in the man's ear. Then he, he licked his thumb or licked his hand and touched the man's tongue. At some point, he looked up to heaven. He sighed. He did all of this. And then it says immediately, Mark's favorite word. We don't see it in the ESV, but it's actually there. Same idea that at that moment, the man could hear and the man could speak. Now, granted, a couple of things. Um, COVID wasn't real back then, okay? They didn't have that. So if I did this, number one, a lot of reasons people would be like, hey, 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 that's bad, okay? Like if I licked my thumb and tried to touch somebody's tongue, they would back away. They'd be like, you need to go to jail. And, um, and also, that's, that's just gross. Spittle, as most conversationalists are going to talk about back in this day, it wasn't quite viewed the same. Granted, it was very, very bad to spit on someone, but spit was revered from people that had power and authority. Like there's even a case in which someone went to a king who had a lot of authority and he was sick. He was like, can I just have some of your spit? Because you're awesome and I think your spit could make me better. So spit, a little bit different back then. So go ahead, let's kind of remove our cultural blinders and understand that the things that Jesus is doing, they probably didn't have the same weight then that they do for us now. But either way, it was very interesting that what Jesus did, um, it was just a bit abnormal. You know, even though spit wasn't thought of the way it's thought now, like the things that he did in this moment, they, they weren't, weren't really normal. And so a lot of people have read this, people that aren't necessarily Christ followers, they're like, man, Jesus was a great magician. He was really good. Like he did some stuff with spit, he said some words, and bam, this guy could hear and he could speak. Pretty amazing magician. But it wasn't magic. It wasn't an incantation. He even spoke a bit in Aramaic, and that's the reason Mark's going to translate it here. But basically what happened is this guy, you know, he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak well. And so Jesus just pulls him to the side, and he starts this process of restoration of the things that ail him. And he did. Like, he, he pulls him aside separately. We don't even know if he pulled the disciples with him. It doesn't say that he did, but it's very likely maybe they were within sight of him. But either way, it was this personal exchange between Jesus and this man, and he just took the moment. He took this moment, and it does say he did, he, he put his fingers in his ears, not normal, you know, kind of a thing, but it was the source of the, the problem. Uh, it says that he, he did, he spit on his hand, or he, he licked his thumb one way or the other, he looked up to heaven, and he had kind of a sigh, and then he touched the man's tongue, and then just life, restoration occurred. A pretty crazy scene. A pretty crazy scene. And at one point, he even said that Aramaic word of a, a paftha or be opened. Be opened. A lot of people do. They look at it and think that it's an incantation. But actually, it was just Jesus speaking in his native tongue of Aramaic. And Mark found it necessary to uh, make sure to translate that for the Greek readers and the Greek speakers of the day. But he just wanted you to, to know that at this moment, Jesus spoke this. A couple of things that would have been fairly obvious to the readers of the day and and even the Jewish observers of the day, uh, their minds would have immediately been drawn back to, to Isaiah 35. Like for us, we wouldn't. Like we would just look at this and be like, man, Jesus, Jesus is back at it again. Jesus is doing some of those miracle things. Uh, he's just doing those things. He's putting emphasis on the wrong place. But either way, pretty awesome. But if we go back to Isaiah, uh, there's some prophecy that, that Isaiah issued. Should be the very next passage on there, maybe. maybe. There it is. 
It's amazing technology. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They shall, uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The readers of this, and probably even Peter, when he was conveying this idea to Mark, it probably was a quick reminder of all the things that had been said that Jesus would do. He would open the ears of the deaf. He would loose the tongue of the mute just to prove that he was the Messiah that was promised. They would have heard this. They would have thought this. They would have been like, maybe, maybe, maybe this is this, this Jesus that we've been waiting for for 700 plus years. Maybe even longer if they go back and they were really, really good students uh, of Scripture. But either way, they, they heard this and they probably would have thought, man, the, the deaf can hear. The mute can speak. Who is this man that can do these things? So he spits, he touches the tongue, um, just amazing, immediately, ears opened. And even this particular passage, it, it says that uh, the way that it phrases it just makes it sound like, and he was able to speak, but in the, the literal Greek it says the chains that bound his tongue were loosed. The chains that bound his tongue were loosed. Such a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. It says his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then after that, it says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously uh, they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well, and even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Towards the end of this passage, it even kind of points us further back than Isaiah. It points us to Exodus chapter 4, when, when God's having a conversation with Moses. And Moses, at that point, he's like, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent, and I don't have the ability. You're asking me to, to go and tell your people to do these things, but I can't speak. And God says, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And God responds, he says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In this moment, in this place, towards the end and the conclusion of this passage, we're also reminded of something else that we need to see, that they need to see about Jesus. And it's the true identity of who he is. Yes, he demonstrates great power. Yes, he has the ability to pull people to the side and do amazing things. But it's not because he's a magician. It's not because he's a gifted prophet. But he's actually God with skin on. The same God that spoke to their forefather Moses and who said, you're worried about talking in front of people. Don't you realize who I am? I give the ability to speak, I give the ability to hear, I give all those abilities because I am God himself. By the end of this passage, by the culmination, by everything that we see, we not only see like the heart of Jesus is for restoration, we see the identity of Jesus is God himself. Who else can, can open the ears of the deaf and give the mute the ability to speak? It's, it's actually God himself. And so for this particular crowd, like it would have been, it would have been a little bit different for them than it would have been for us. Uh, because they didn't have the context necessarily that we have. The people in Capernaum, they would have had a bit more context too because they would have grown up hearing the stories of God. It would have been part of their culture. It would have been part of their home. There would have probably been pictures and things like that hanging on the wall. They would have been to the temple every now and then. But these people, these people apart from those, those called out, set apart from the creation, apart from those Israelites, these people, they needed to hear it too. They needed to see it. They needed to experience it. They needed to be there couple of things in this passage that, that kind of stand out before we get to a little application, like um, a ton of objections to the way Jesus did the things that he did in this passage. Like I said, some people read this and they're like, man, he was, he was practicing magic. 
or he was practicing an incantation kind of a thing. He was going through some steps that, that might be emulated and might be done. He was an amazing magician. But I think it's important for us to see that anytime restoration occurs on behalf of God through Jesus, I think, number one, we need to see that it's, it's God's heart. It's his plan. Jesus came to restore. And the way that he did it when he was in person, he was doing it one person, individual at a time, leading to grand restoration that would occur through death on the cross and resurrection by, through, by grace through faith, that type of resurrection and restoration. But in the meantime, it was one person to another in the sight of others so that they could see and respond. And so it wasn't this, this magical incantation. And even when he said, like, be opened or paftha, it wasn't just him saying something so that it could happen, but it's very reminiscent of, of actually what John 1, 1 tells us, or John 1 tells us and Genesis tells us, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, there was nothing made that wasn't made through him. In the very beginning, we actually see Jesus, like the person of Jesus in the Trinity, speaking light into existence. Let there be light, and there was. Let there be an expanse between the waters, and there was. Let there be an expanse between the earth and the sky, and there was. He spoke things into existence. And here it wasn't an incantation to, to do some kind of magic soliloquy or anything like that. It was just this idea of what I want right now I speak, and what I want right now I speak is that to be opened. It's amazing to think that the God of all creation can speak ideas and speak restoration into our lives, but he does. And this man, he just said, look, ears, be open, and they were wasn't magic. It was the heart of God on display. It was his desire for restoration to occur in this man. And we could draw major spiritual implications and parallels with this passage if we wanted to. I know they're kind of low-hanging fruit, but they're also very good low-hanging fruit of, yes, my ears need to be open to the words of God, the plans of God, the heart of God. I need to hear too. He needs to touch my ears and say the same thing, a path to be opened. He needs to say that. And then he needs to loose my tongue that was inhabited and indwelled by sin that wasn't able to speak the goodness of God, and he can touch mine too and allow me to speak. And those are great things, but I think the biggest thing that we need to see here and in now is like it is God's heart that restoration occurs from one person to another, to another, to another. And yes, we need to hear, and yes, we need to speak, but the heart of God just says, I want to restore you. I want to make you whole. I want to make you right. But we also have to do it in light of this, that we have to understand that the person offering this, he's not a magician. He's not just a good prophet. He's not just a wise person. And if we look at Jesus in all those ways, yes, we may learn something. And yes, we may be amazed. We may see some neat things. But unless we're looking at Jesus as the true Son of God, God with skin on walking and breathing and restoring among us, salvation will not be experienced by us. Healing and restoration will not occur by us because we have to believe that this Jesus, this good, good man, was not just a good man, but he was actually God. Because a good man could not die to save my soul. A good man I couldn't place my faith in to make me right with God. A good man I couldn't follow to the ends of the age for his mission that existed before me. It must be a good God that I follow. And that's the reason that at the end of this passage is so important that the people here, the people now, we see that no one else could do what he just did. No one else could loosen the tongue which was bound. No one else could open the ears of the deaf. No one else could do the things he did, regardless of method. No one else could do those things. It must be God, the source of our restoration, the source of our hope, the author of our faith. It must be God himself. So many beautiful things in this passage, but I think for us, most of the time we ask, so what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Before I think... 
uh, what do we do, I think there's a couple things that we need to know first. I think the first that we need to know, and we see it in verses 33 through 34, I just want to reread those again. It says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. I think the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus' restoration is incredibly personal. Jesus' restoration is incredibly personal. If we're incredibly religious people, um, we're going to see Jesus' restoration as generic. We're going to see it as generic because we're going to see it as a system of rules and regulations. We follow that, and he provides clearly for all who do those things. The problem is that's not the way that it works. It's not the way that it works. Instead, Jesus' restoration is incredibly personal. We see it in very vivid detail here that he takes the man from the crowd that had brought him, and he pulls him to the side to establish a connection. We see it with the woman at the well. We see it in a ton of other places. We see it where he specifically called the disciples. His restoration that he offers, his plan that he offers is incredibly personal, not generic. He pulled him to the side, and then he did some very strange things. Touches his ears, licks his thumb. Like, imagine... There's no other deeper relational way that he could have healed this man. Like he could have just touched him, and that would have been fine. It would have still been the touch. But he said, look, the the source of your anguish is here and here. And I'm going to look up to God, and I'm going to grant you to be opened and your tongue to be loosed. Like it was incredibly personal. And we see that in, in the fact that we, we represent so many different ways in which God has dealt with each of us as individuals, like very unique stories. Like that's the reason we celebrate stories so much here because your story, my story, very different, your story, your story, very different. The end result by grace through faith is still the same, but our stories are as unique as we are. And Jesus is personally reaching out to each one of us as unique as we are in the place that we are as we are there. Jesus is incredibly personal. And I think that's so vastly important because it goes to, man, it goes to inform us as to why Jesus came in the first place. Like, yes, God could have done anything that he wanted to redeem mankind, but his way of doing it was to come in person, to dwell amongst us, to speak to us, to restore us one person at a time, person to person to person, expecting the story and the fame of his to be spread from ear to ear, from mouth to mouth. Like he intended all of this to be personal and not just religious. Like, it's beautiful to celebrate the fact that Jesus approaches us as we are, where we are, with exactly what each one of us as individuals need on a personal level. Regardless of what your sin struggle was in the past, it's probably different from the person sitting beside you. Whether you struggled with addiction, whether you struggled with lying, whether you struggled with knocking off banks, I don't know. But either way, your struggle different from the person to the right or the left of you. But either way, Jesus comes to us as individuals and said, I know exactly who you are and where you've been, and I want you just like that so that I can reshape you exactly the way that I will on a very personal, intimate, relational level. Like Jesus is not throwing out a blanket of salvation. He's throwing out an offer of salvation that occurs through relationship with us on individual levels so that we can collectively, as a body, celebrate who he is. But it's incredibly personal. I love that Jesus meets us uniquely where we are, as unique as we are, to offer us salvation because only he can. Beautiful example, the way that he does it there. I think the second thing that that we need to see, that we need to know about this passage, just like we saw earlier in the book of Mark when we saw there was a, a paralytic 
And he had some friends, and those friends wanted to get him to Jesus. And so they worked their way through the crowd. They climbed up on a roof. They tore the roof off, and they lowered Jesus down. I mean, they lowered their friend down into the presence of Jesus because they couldn't get the, the cot through the crowd. We have to understand that, that just like them in this passage, I need to state that my faith is not just about me. That my faith is not just about me. Like we see in this passage, like this guy was deaf, he could not speak. There's no way that he could have walked up to Jesus and even asked Jesus to heal him. Like he couldn't do it. He didn't have the ability. He didn't, his tongue was chained and trapped. He didn't have the ability to say, redeem me. But you know what he did have? He had some friends that believed on his behalf. And he had some friends. It says they. That's all we know. It says they brought him to Jesus. They made their way through the crowd. They spoke to Jesus. They begged. They implored. They asked earnestly, please touch our friend so that he can hear and he can speak. Please touch our friend so that he can hear and so that he can speak. My faith is not just about me. By grace through faith, I can believe, but my faith is also about who am I bringing to Jesus? Like literally, not a, not a metaphor. Like, this is not just a, a good idea, but no, this is how the gospel works. Like, the gospel's not just about, like, crowds of people sitting around one person speaking. No, the gospel is about me arm in arm with someone else who needs to hear about Jesus, and I get to convey who Jesus is through my story, by grace through faith, so that they can hear, so that they may believe too. I don't save them, God does, but they must hear, according to Romans 10, and I must speak. But I won't speak unless I believe. You won't speak unless you believe. Religion's only going to go so far, but this personal relationship, on the other hand, that Jesus offers when he pulls us to the side, addresses the needs that we have that only he can handle, it is about person to person. It's about the kind of relationship that he starts that he expects us to continue with those around us. Yes, starting in our home, going to our workplace, going to those who live next door and across the street, going to those who we see playing in the same park every single week. You know their names. I do not. Person to person, my faith is not just about me. Who am I bringing to Jesus? Like, who am I taking? Like, yes, now on a very literal sense, that may be who we bring in on Sundays. That's great. Bring people on Sundays. That's awesome. Bring people into your community groups. That's awesome. But who are you having coffee with? Who are you, who are you sitting with at lunch? Who do you tuck in at night, your children, that you have an opportunity to convey a story that God started in you? What are their names? Who are the people that are experiencing the fact that your faith is not just about you, but it has implications beyond you, personally, to other people? What are their names? I was reminded this morning, and, and I'll be honest, it's been a couple of weeks since I pulled these out, but I was reminded of these cards that I, that I pray for frequently, three names that we've written down of the people that are close to us but far from Jesus that need to hear about the truth of the gospel through our story. I was reminded of those this morning. When was the last time you pulled your card out? And prayed for those three names. Maybe the one that was circled. The one that you knew you had the greatest opportunity in relationship right now to, to invite them into your story. Hear their story. Convey yours. What was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond? And what's my life been like since? The gospel's in there. What's that name? Who are those three people? Maybe you never wrote down on a card. Maybe right now you're thinking and you need to reevaluate who those people are. Who are those three people that are closest to you right now but farthest away from Jesus that you have the opportunity, the ability, the influence to speak to in no uncertain terms that they need the personal attention of Jesus and only Jesus? Who are those people? Because my faith is not just about me. Your faith is not just about you. Your faith affects other people. Man, who are the people that you're writing down, that you're praying for on a daily basis? Who are they? 
What are their names? Who are the people that you haven't written down yet, that you haven't put in a conspicuous place, that you see their name, you pray for them on a regular, frequent basis, taking them to the throne of God and saying, God, please redeem them in the name of your son. Who are they? Your faith is not just about you. These, these men, the they in this passage, they knew it was not just about them. The other thing that I love in the end, I told you there were a couple unique words in this passage that um, there's a fancy Greek name for when they pop up just here. But basically, uh, in here, in one place when it was talking about he was mute or he could not speak well, it only appears in Greek here in the New Testament, but it appears in Greek one other place in the Septuagint in the Old Testament in the passage in Isaiah that we read. So only two times in the whole, whole Bible. So that's the reason the, the correlation was drawn so clearly when Mark wrote this. People would go back and be like, hey, I've heard that exact word before, and go back and read in Isaiah and be like, oh, 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 yeah. It's talking about this Jesus, this Jesus we've been waiting for, the one that can loosen the tongue of the one that was trapped the one that will heal the mute or the one that was unable to speak clearly. Yeah, there was that one word, but then there's a word at the end, and it says, as, and they were astonished beyond measure. One Greek word that doesn't pop up anywhere else, but it basically means like over the top, impressed, blown away by what Jesus had done. Only time we see it. Man, we have got to become we, I, us, the church, we need to become so much better at celebrating the good works of Jesus. We have to become better. Like, we're not to be publicists, okay? We're not to, to, to do the billboardification thing, but we need to be better personally, again, relationally, at celebrating the good things God had done. They, they looked here, and even though Jesus said, look, 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 don't, don't tell anyone. I know it's different from the guy from the Decapolis before. I told him to go and tell everyone, I need you just to keep it down just a little bit because I still need to roam around in this area. And if you tell a bunch of people, I'm probably not going to be able to, but I just need you to keep it down a little bit. They couldn't. They couldn't. They could not help but speak. And I know, like in my brain, I go back, I'm like, oh, is there a declaration of Jesus? Is it sinful because he told them not to? I don't care. Here's the thing that's important. They looked at what he did and they said, oh, my word, that's incredible. And they could not help but speak about the things that Jesus had done. The personal interaction that he had with this man to open his ears, to loosen his tongue. They looked at it, regardless of not whether they were disgusted or we're disgusted. They looked at it and they said, that's insane. The audacity, the beauty, the miraculous work of this guy who reminds us of the God that our neighbors have been talking about, that they've been waiting on. We have to look at it. We have to say, that's incredible. How can we look at the life of someone who was contained by sin, trapped by sin, indwelled by sin, and that God releases us from that and not look at it and go, that is over the top, ridiculous, crazy. We have to begin to understand that the works of Jesus that only Jesus can do are entirely worth our amazement and our speech. We have to look and be like, that is crazy. I did not warrant that. I did not deserve that. But you gave it miraculously and beautifully anyway, and I need to celebrate it. We need to see the works of Jesus as over the top, insane. The insanity of God is that he redeems sinners who are in opposition to him, but by grace through faith, he brings us in and makes us family. That's not normal. We wouldn't operate like that. That's not the way that I would do it. That's not the way that any of you could do it. I don't care what you say. That is not the way that we work as humans. But it's the way God works. Through Jesus and only Jesus. And when we look at it, 
it must amaze us. And it must move us, even when people tell us to be silent, to speak all the louder. Now, granted, if Jesus told me to be quiet, I would do my best to be quiet. But in the context of the rest of the world that's going to tell you not to speak so loudly, maybe we get a little louder. Maybe we speak a little clearer. Maybe we speak a little more often. Maybe we speak a little more relationally. Because the things he does, no one else can do. The restoration that he desires, no one else really wants. The way that he does it, we can't replicate it. But God has started something, and he intends for us to be the ones that talk about it, to speak about it, to share about it. One person to another, to another, to another. So I think it, it leads us to, A, we need to recognize the things that God does. We need to, B, speak of the things that God does. And C, we need to thank Him for the things that God does. And that small list right there, recognize it, speak of it, thank Him for it. Do you know what else we call that? That's worship. That's our simplest definition of what worship is. We see the things God does, we recognize them, we speak of the things God does, we thank God for the things God does. That's, that's worship. Even without singing a single corporate song, which is great, don't get me wrong, that's worship. You better believe when, when this guy, when he could speak, I promise the very first thing that he spoke about was Jesus. When Jesus could actually open his ears and then he could hear you know, I think it's amazing that he touched his ears first and then he said a path to, I wonder if he, that's the first thing that he heard. I do. But I promise, when his ears were open and his tongue was loose, he wanted to hear more, he wanted to speak more. He's done the same thing for us. Again, that spiritual parallel, low-hanging, good fruit, he's opened our ears to hear of the things that he's done. He's freed our tongue that was once trapped by sin. <laughs> He's freed it so that we can speak. Speak of the personal way in which he invited me in to understand that my faith is not just about me and to actually tell people that the things he's done for me, they're over the top. They're not normal. They're worth me speaking loudly, speaking clearly, speaking frequently, and with love attached. How are we doing with it? Not to elicit guilt, but just to set us on the way. Like, this is how the gospel works. This is exactly how the gospel works. If you're waiting, like, I'll be honest. If you're waiting for your pastor, as short and as bald as he is, to tell your neighbor about Jesus, you could be waiting a long time. If you're waiting on your pastor or your children's ministry director to, to tell your children about Jesus, you could be waiting a long time. Now, we're going to do our best, but there's a good chance that we'll never have contact with your neighbor, uh, direct contact with your kids, but you do. You already have a relationship there. You already have something there that we don't have. I already have something with my neighbors that you don't have. I'm not expecting you to share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm not expecting you to disciple my neighbor to the cross. That's my responsibility, my call, my duty, and my privilege. What are yours? What are ours? Man, I love the fact that 
Jesus invites us into something that he started well before us. But there are expectations attached. Now, if you've heard the gospel without expectations, I apologize. I don't think you heard it from us, but if you've heard it somewhere, that there's a, there's a gospel that we can live, we can breathe, we can experience by grace through faith without expectation. I apologize. That's, that's not normal. But there are expectations attached. The expectation is what you've seen, what you've heard, you speak of. What you've experienced, you speak of. You tell. Whether it's him touching your ears or touching your tongue or whether it's him just removing the weight of the bondage of sin from you. It's there. We get to speak. And this isn't religiously obligated talk. This is not legalism at its finest. No, this is just, man, we get to live in response to the goodness of God. Live in response to the goodness of God, the things that he's done in my life, in your life, in our life. They should blow our mind. Because they are. They are mind-blowing things. God, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for uh, reaching each of us as individuals on a personal level, as we are, how we were, um, for your glory. God, I know sometimes it can be incredibly daunting to think about talking to someone about spiritual things, especially in, in contrast to a culture that says we're not, we're not obligated or we don't have the right to tell people what they should believe. But God, you tell us that we get to tell people what we believe and why we believe that. God, you tell us that at every turn we should be ready to, to give a reason for our hope. God, I pray that we are people that display our hope frequently through words, through actions, through intent. That we understand the way that you intend to grow your kingdom as person to person, relationship to relationship. And God, while there are beautiful times in which we are gathered together, we all get to hear the same things. The majority of our life is not lived in that. The majority of our life is lived shoulder to shoulder with someone else who needs to hear about the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would not make us a group of incredibly religious people that check boxes, but God, I pray that you would make us people that see the beauty and the craziness of what you've done and that we could not help but speak. And God, that you would grow your kingdom as a result. Thank you for a city that needs to hear. Thank you for people that live in it, that know you. God, I pray that you give us the words when we don't have them. You give us the boldness where it is not. And you grow your family. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name.